Welcome to our special year-end best of 2020 episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and I run a consulting firm called Ezra Group. We're experts in everything related to wealth tech, and this is where I usually give our standard marketing pitch, but instead I'm going to sneak in a plug for our market research team that has been doing some incredible work led by our head of research, Gene Sullivan. If you're running a fintech firm and looking to expand into new markets or develop new products, you're going to need data and insights on the client segments that you're targeting. You absolutely have to know what prospective clients are looking for, the size of the obtainable market, the revenue potential, who the top competitors are, and any functionality gaps that need to be addressed. You can get all this and more from Ezra Group's research team. If you're a member of the executive team at a growing fintech vendor, contact Ezra Group right now by going to our website, ezragroupllc.com, and click on the big button that says schedule a complimentary discovery session at the bottom of the homepage. Now, before we start the show, remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, myself and everyone on the WM Today production team will be very appreciative if you do. Our content team has pulled some of the best clips from the best episodes during this year for your listening pleasure. And there were so many of them that they couldn't fit them all into one episode. Uh, this is actually part two of our best of 2020. You can check out uh, part one, which was posted, I believe, back on October 22nd. So scroll back through your timeline and you can find that and listen to that anytime you like. And check this one out. We've got a really great lineup of uh, clips from the best guests we've had on the podcast. We have, uh, first up is Babu Sivadasan from Jiffy AI talking about uh, hyper apps and uh, low code uh, development and AI, some of the things they're doing at jiffy.ai, really, really interesting stuff. Next up is uh, Lex Sokolin, and he's the fintech heretic. He does a really great rundown on East versus West fintech and how uh, the battle is going on between these two uh, two regions and, and how it's uh, shaking out. Then we move on to uh, Sean Brown, the CEO of YCharts, great uh, product uh, portfolio analytics tool, client communication tool, uh, how they're expanding, building out their capabilities into separately managed accounts, which is really a cool thing for a lot of financial advisors who will need that. And I think the next one is Rian Horgan from Silver, a really interesting app uh, for retirement, which I thought was a very interesting. I did it myself. I actually signed up myself and got into it. And we, we talked a lot about retirement and how fintech apps can help people retire better. And finally, uh, last but not least, Aaron Shum from Vestwell talking about the, uh, the tech stack for retirement plans that he's building over at Vestwell and some of the uh, insights they gain from their retirement trends report. So please uh, take a listen and let us know what you think. Post on social media which one of these guests in the clips was your favorite. Look forward to talking to you again on the other side. First guest on this best of 2020 edition is Babu Sivadasan, CEO and co-founder of Jiffy.ai. I've known Babu for quite some time. One of the first people I met in the wealth management industry, in fact, way back in 2005, 2006, uh, when he was working at Investnet, actually a precursor to one of the, one of the firms that Investnet merged with 
uh, before they became Investnet Investnet. Uh, he was with Investnet 20 years, and then two or three years ago founded this great company called Jiffy.ai, doing some really cool stuff with robotic process automation and what they call hyper apps. Very interesting stuff. I you should really check out their website, Jiffy.ai. Look at some of the things they're doing with customer service, other process automation, KYC, uh, transforming finance and accounting, invoicing, lots of um, what sound like mundane processes, but big business, the you know, tremendous scalability uh, across industries. Uh, I really hope uh, he's, uh, Jiffy.ai takes off and does really well. A lot of great uh, work can be accomplished. So uh, take a listen to this clip from my interview with Babu. Moving on to, so we talked about hyper apps. Uh, you have another product that you call Innovate. This is the one I think is really valuable and I'm really interested in this being a former programmer that you're reimagining software development and having the system generate its own code. How are you doing that? And how is that better than a real programmer doing the code? You know, where it is really different, I mean, the value add is, you know, we, we, you know every line of code that we write, you know, we introduce the possibility of bugs, you know? So, so as we speak right now, um, there are uh, thousands of people out there you know, writing, uh, introducing bugs into the, into the software that, you know, uh, because you know, we, you know, we bring new people in all the time, and uh, you know, we are repeating the same set of mistakes, the same um, things, you know, that we have solved before, or you don't understand, you don't know that like, you have a piece of functionality that is already in there, but uh, you are still building it, you know, because you, know, you don't know that you know, a new person coming into the team doesn't know about it. So, um, um, software development, you know, especially enterprise application development, is fundamentally broken that way. Um, whereas, you know, if we were to let systems do that, you know, they have that awareness, they have that digital uh, blueprint of the entire ecosystem, entire uh, application, um, um, that digital twin, if you will, right? So with that, it knows, you know, if, if, if you're looking for a new piece of functionality, it will automatically bring up you know, that, that uh, set of choices, you know, that, that already exists, you know, that you may have already created. Um, being able to, you know, um, write self-tested code, you know, automatically. Being able to, so you, you're taking this to a paradigm, a much higher level, where you're talking in terms of the needs, you know, that you're trying to solve for, and let machines interpret that, you know. So, so we have heavy um, uh, capability in natural language understanding, so we we are able to. Um, read those instructions in plain uh, English, right? And, and uh, you know, why do we have to write code? Because, you know, machines didn't understand your own way of express, uh, expressing things, you know? So you had to learn machines' way of doing things, right? And, and, and now we're talking about, you know, machines have gotten to that stage you know, where, you know, we can, with technology, enable them to think like us, you know, or, or enable them to interact and, and take things, you know, that are native to us and have them be interpreted rather than the other way around, which is, which is supposed to be the way, you know, that, uh, it, it, which is what we always wanted, right? And so so it's finally getting to be a reality. Mm -hmm. But isn't it true that the AI is just simulating human thought? Or is it really having their own? Or is it really having its own thoughts? Yeah, no, it's, it's it's really having a series of small innovations, you know, that that you put them together, 
and and that's what contributes to that capability. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about um, your uh, well. This year, you guys raised eighteen million in a Series A. Uh, so, congratulations! Thank you. you. You've done a lot with the company in a short amount of time. Where um, how is that this latest fund this latest funding raise going to help the firm? Yeah. So what we do uh, takes a lot of capital, right? No, I mean we are we are. Um, Putting out groundbreaking technology, um, you know, that takes a lot of effort and a lot of uh, engineering, a lot of technology investment that is necessary to do that. And uh, we have been fortunate to get that first round of capital that was, uh, you know, essential uh, to, uh, you know, invest, you know, and, and build a team out, you know, build a strong technology team, uh, technology capability, and things like that. So, um, you know, we are in that. You know, we've uh, done that. You know, we we are we are serving clients today. We have uh, thirty plus clients. You know, ten enterprise, ten Fortune companies as clients. You know, so we are uh, in that. Uh, you know, just getting our uh, um, technology out there, and and uh, customers start leveraging you know, the value of it, and uh, um, getting to that next step. You know, of the evolution of the organization, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've raised capital from. Um, um, uh, you know, outstanding venture capital firms and uh, a bunch of uh, public company executives and uh, people uh, who believe in what we are doing. And, uh, you know, so the way we are doing this, you know, we are we are taking on AI-based innovation uh, with a deep sense of social responsibility. You know, so we are, we are a combination of a for-profit and a non-profit at the same time. Uh, we understand and recognize that, you know, what we do, um, you know, disrupts the traditional uh, jobs as we know it, you know, it has the potential to. Any AI company is, is a, in a way dabbling into disrupting uh, the, the, the workforce as we know it. And uh, so we, you know, it's been, it's been a good um, way to combine the two. So on one end, you know, you can be disruptive, but then on the other end, you, know, you can also be compassionate about it. We can help uh, invest in those people who might be potentially being affected help them retrain, you know, for the next set of jobs, you know, so it's, it's a, a very um, humbling experience that way to kind of try and do both at the same time. Next up on this best of 2020 episode is Lex Sokolin, who is the head of wealth management for Consensus. And Consensus is one of those crypto blockchain software companies maybe you've heard about uh, in the news. Uh, they're a programmable blockchain software company. Uh, so they're based on Ethereum, uh, which is part of which has got a programmable blockchain. And the way they, the way he likes to uh, call it is it's a, a next generation computing paradigm. So they're looking to uh, leverage blockchain and other uh, technologies, crypto technologies, uh, decentralized technologies for financial instruments, whether it's uh, funds or trading or investments. Uh, they also work with something called decentralized finance, which I won't explain here, but please Google it. It's really interesting. I think it's uh, one of the futures of uh, where finance is going. And then using blockchain for large financial institutions. Lex always has great insights, which is why I love to have him on the program as often as I can. So please take a listen. The soup. Yeah, the, um, I liked your comparison of the Western versus Eastern model. So can we talk about that just a little bit more? Uh, can you explain what you mean when you say that the, that the West is it, the question was can the West integrate finance quickly enough? 
versus can the East grow quickly enough? So why is it integration versus growth? Why do you see it that way? Well, I think the, the West is starting from a very different place where behaviorally people don't really want to adopt new things. It's, it's a friction, right? So I think large parts of the U.S. are still swiping their credit cards or, you know, they're still uh, sending in paper forms to their financial advisor thinking that is a, uh, a reasonable thing to be doing. And the regulatory environment in the U.S. is, um, you know, puts, puts precedent and consumer protection first in a way that is uh, largely blocking of what were they trying to pretend, prevent? They're trying to prevent Facebook destroying the banking industry, uh, you know, to put it into stark terms. Um, in, in ch- yeah, so it's not consumer protection, it's, it's their constituents protection or the ones who are the banks that are giving them campaign funds. Protection. It's, you know, you use the words of one to do the other. So, you, you know, we can revisit, for example, the reaction to the fiduciary rule right? Like uh, it was the kind of the, and I'm going to get this wrong too, but it's not the trans, it may be the trans Americas of the world or similar firms, the LPLs of the world uh, might've had an allergy because they have, um, they have commission-based businesses to the fiduciary, the fiduciary rule, whether from the DOL or the SEC. Um, whereas, you know, the, the robo advisors were all about the fiduciary rule and, and thought it was, um, uh, it was good change. And it's sort of, it's like, it's this conversation about what does an individual need? What does a human being need to be taken care of or to have the freedom to buy bad stocks for too much too much commissions? Um, and so the conversation's about the consumer behavior, but behind that is really like the, I think the incumbent interest. You see the same thing with the banking industry in the States. So, you know, the OCC keeps trying to put out this FinTech charter, which would let Square and PayPal and, um, and other, you know, Stripe have, easier access to holding people's deposits and then local state um, kind of banking organizations just keep suing the OCC for overstepping its mandate. So I, th- I think that's just inherent in, um, uh, in our society. So we're running out of time, but I want to hit a couple more topics. The, um, so the news, I was just looking at some of the news that Robinhood valuation hit 11 billion. Do you see that ever ending? Is there no end for that valuation? Is it going to hit a wall? Are people going to realize that they're not making any money day trading and it's going to fall off or is it just going to keep growing? Um, I'm somebody that is, I'm somebody that comes from like an asset allocation and modern portfolio theory background, putting aside that none of the numbers work anymore, but regardless, like I diversify and hold, like, sure, believe in that. So for me, Robinhood was always a sign of kind of selling candy uh, and especially giving away candy, right? So it's both, it's both delicious and addictive and bad for people in the long run. And so, you know, I, I continue to believe that um, at the same time, you have to observe what Robinhood has done, which is it has, it has thrown so much money at user acquisition and training people in certain ways um, that the net effect is retail trading is something like 40% of market volumes now. Uh, that's a two to three X over the same as last year. I think COVID has played a large part in that because we're all trapped in our houses. And so everybody's in these digital experiences. Um, there's also, I think, underneath the trading sort of like this, this, um, this, it's not a sadness, but it's everyone is trapped in a terrible financial situation. So, you know, when 
what what is what a CEOs of failing companies do. They take out a whole bunch of debt that the firm can cannot possibly repay, but it's like the moonshot, you know, to try and get out of it. And so I think for a lot of Americans, it's this is why you buy crypto assets. This is why you know you kind of you take out too much too too much lending. It's because you have no choice. You're in such a hole that you need something to give you a narrative to get out of that. And I think Robinhood has amplified that to such an extent that it eradicated the previous industry equilibrium around you know, commission pricing. And so there is no commission pricing anymore for anybody. And then it exposed, you know, it generates 600 million in revenue, like it's, it's, or a billion in revenue. It's not a, it's not a fintech struggling to make money. Um, but what it has, where does that revenue come from? The revenue comes from high frequency trading shops that act as market makers in capital market. What, what does that mean? It means that um, they buy and sell on both sides and they take a spread in between. Uh, they don't take really exposure to any asset. They do it really fast. Um, and you know they get retail flows from one side and that gives them liquidity to close out trades on the other side. And you can have super funky outcomes. It's the equivalent of advertising for Google, right? Selling the product of attention. In this case, it's selling the product of order flow. And so I think Robinhood, um, we're in a transition to a different equilibrium for, for, for equities. Um, and I think that transition benefits Robinhood in a strong way and makes it much more difficult for firms that want to be fiduciaries um, and, and want to do well by the client because, uh, the only revenue pool sort of left is either is either um, cash accounts and interest on that, which is very low, or trying to incentivize payments uh, through interchange, and then or trying to incentivize uh, trading um, and kind of churn in an account. So I don't think there is necessarily a cap on that to answer the question more directly, um, and I think that's at the expense. It's like a, it's like a social cost um, that that has been born as a result of that. Can you give me a one-minute answer? Why are you a fintech heretic? Um, why am I a fintech heretic? I I must get bored easily, and so I always look for what's the edge. You know, what's the where's the place where people are breaking the thing, um, and and reimagining how it could be. So even in a in a situation where ninety nine percent of the industry is the same, I'm always going to look at that one percent that is behaving in a different way. And so this is why I'm interested in DeFi. This is why I'm interested in how uh, crypto assets repackage financial instruments and repackage asset allocations and automate all the things about actually manufacturing the financial product, um, how they break global regulation, how um, you custody and hold them in a different way. Uh, and I think, you know, we, as, as people have only so much time to, to spend and uh, for me, spending my time on things that are curious and different um, is where I get the biggest payoff. So, you know, that's, that's always been my frame. This next clip, uh, I really enjoy talking to this person. This is Rian Horgan, uh, the CEO of Silver, uh, also Kinder, which I think is their parent company. And uh, I think four years ago when she started Kinder slash Silver, uh, after 17 years at J.P. Morgan, where she had done a lot of things for them. I think she was head of uh, derivatives in Europe and 
uh, moved up in, in, in the industry, in the business and, and was head of a lot of uh, parts of JP Morgan. I don't have her LinkedIn in front of me, unfortunately, please take a look. But what I really liked was the way part of her story is that she was looking for her identity when she uh, left JP Morgan and wanted to start her own business, but people didn't see her as being someone to invest in, which um, could be a gender issue, could be an age issue since she was almost 40, didn't have a co-founder. Uh, you know, people tend to look for, you know, P C uh, PE firms and VC firms, look for the young, you know, hype hip kids to put money into. And us older people, uh, they don't see us as investable uh, as, as Rian uh, found. And she finally found um, a, a couple of firms that, that took a chance on her, fortunately, and she's doing really well. One of those VC firms was uh, Anthemus or Anthemus, which was one of the first funding rounds of Betterment. So these guys seem to know what they're talking about. And she also got a big stake from um, under the firm. Where's my notes here? I apologize. Um, a big stake from uh, Penny Pritzker, uh, who uh, is a billionaire, the Pritzker billionaires, uh, Inspired Capital, and Alexa Von Tobel, who founded LearnVest, so a successful entrepreneur there who have taken a shot with Rian and her company, Silver, which is a retirement app aged at, uh, aged, a retirement app targeted at those uh, aged 55 and older, where she found uh, is, is not really uh, focused on by a lot of startups. So great uh, conversation. Check out this clip with Rian Horgan from Silver. Indeed. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I, I can see how you, you'd want to jump right out at some, something like that. But you're up against a lot of, a lot of competition. So um, I know in, in a previous interview, you mentioned you want to become the Apple Watch of retirement information rather than the life alert. So can you explain what you mean by that? I, mean, I think I know what you mean, but what do you mean yeah. by that? Um, so Craig, we, we were just discussing a little bit earlier, you described yourself as a baby boomer, but with tech habits um, that look more like Gen X. And what I would say to you is that's actually very indicative of our customer base, which is the vast majority of people underestimate how tech savvy this customer base is. This is a customer who grew up using technology in the 80s. And my, you know, my, my dad is older than you, but he's, he's 70. He read CAT scans and MRIs on a computer at home in the 80s. And so this is a tech literate and a tech savvy community, but for some reason, the market looks at everyone over the age of 50 together as one big bucket of people. And so for the technology that generally has been built for the over 50 plus demographic, you have products like Life Alert, which are all about falling and not being able to get up. And mm -hmm. I would imagine, Craig, that you have no interest in wearing a Life Alert. But um, snowboarding. Ex exactly. And that so but, falling and can't get up snowboarding. But, right, but I, I, I don't know if you have an Apple Watch, but I bet if you did have an Apple Watch, it wouldn't be a signifier that you were old. And I think what we get really excited. OK, so no watch, but no watch. what we get really excited about is that opportunity to build inspiring, beautiful technology for this demographic that doesn't make you feel old, that actually just empowers you to live your next best act. And I think, um, you know, we've spent a tremendous amount of time learning how to design for this demographic. There is a massive difference between how consumers in their 50s and 60s navigate technology versus consumers who are 80 plus. Life Alert is for the 80 plus crowd. What we're building mm -hmm. is the Apple Watch for financial and health decisions in your 50s and 60s. That's cool. That's a, that's a great um, um, way to describe it. And people need that, those kind of anchors to see, to understand what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can say that you're an app to help people navigate retirement. That, that doesn't click. 
So you won't be the Apple Watch of retirement. Oh, okay, now that I kind of see where you want it, where you're going with that. The um, so with that, uh, uh, you, there's a lot of competition in this space. There's so many apps. Now I was just saying, I've got a thousand passwords in my password manager. I've got hundreds of apps on my phone. Although I'm probably way more than average person because I'm I'm in the tech space, so I'm always trying things out. But lots of people have lots of apps, and there's lots of retirement um, savings um, programs. Every wealth management firm, every advisor has got these calculators. Every every uh, asset management firm, Vanguard and Fidelity have these calculators and, and tools for retirement. How do you set yourself apart, uh, knowing that all those other tools are available to your customer base? Yeah. So the vast majority of um, modern tech apps have been built for accumulation. So it's for people who are saving for retirement. So it's learning um, how to pay down your student loans, um, accessing your first mortgage, putting money away maybe for your children's um, 529 plans. The reality is that our consumer is embarking on a different phase of life, which I would you know, think about as decumulation. So all of a sudden it's less about saving for, but it's about spending down your savings in retirement. Um, and also understanding the financial consequences of a lot of decisions you're about to make. So, you know, your election of social security, huge financial decision. Interestingly enough, your decision around healthcare, a very big financial decision when healthcare costs on average a couple $280,000 over the course of retirement, healthcare in America is a financial issue for every single retiree. Um, so what I think is really different about how we really approached building for this consumer is the first is that we're purpose-built for decumulation. So we're helping you in that run-up to that retirement decision and then helping you as you start to draw down your funds. And the second thing is that we're built for what I would think about as modern retirement. So in the old days, um, you know, you had a pension, you had income for life, and you actually probably were only living until your early, early 80s. Today, the vast majority of our customers don't have pensions. They will likely live into their 90s. And so really developing an ecosystem that's much more holistic to help the customer we think is really important. So when I think about our customers, if they're in an offline world, they're talking to a financial advisor, an insurance agent, a Medicare broker, they're going to the social security website, they're talking to a real estate agent, they're talking to a lawyer. There's no one person pulling all that together for them. And so what we think about as the real opportunity here to simplify and empower these customers is actually to be that digital landing spot that pulls all the pieces together for them and can really act as their general practitioner. Um, it creates a lot of anxiety for this customer to have to be the GP as they make all these decisions. But the existing ecosystem of incumbents is really set up to give you an advice on a sliver of the problem and really leave it to the consumer to make the decision. I like how you put that. The existing ecosystem of incumbents is designed. Well, that's a lot. Look, it's, it's and I, look, I, I came from an incumbent, so I understand, which is, like, I often describe what we're building as this intersection of consumer tech, insure tech, fintech, health tech. Find an incumbent who wants to be in all those buckets. It's like, why would you want to be regulated like that, right? So we have the opportunity because we're building from scratch to really think about, like, how do we build an ecosystem that's built for modern retirement? But if you're a bank that's already regulated at the state level, do you want to now add insurance regulators to the equation? Do you want to add you know, um, Medicare to the equation? There's just a, a level of regulation and scrutiny that if you're an incumbent, you probably say, look, I'd rather just stay really good at what I am and, and solve this piece of the puzzle. Um, but again, I think the, the challenge for the consumer is that with this shift from like DB to DC, 
where we just keep pushing more and more decisions to the consumer. Uh, and that's, you know, when we think about what the app is really intended to do is like recognize that all these decisions have frankly been pushed to the consumer. Now, how do we help bring it back together and, and help empower them? That's something you don't hear a lot about pushing decisions to the consumer. Uh, I think uh, people assuming that politicians were doing things for the right reasons, which is a, a, a tough leap to make that, maybe people aren't equipped to make these decisions with all the other decisions they have to make. You think that you're, that you're empowering people by giving them more control, but you maybe are, what you're, what you're saying is that you're, are you saying you're overwhelming them with decisions that they're not um, equipped to make? Well, look, I would just say for the average consumer, the math of social security is complicated. And so it's no surprise that the vast majority of Americans elect social security at the earliest point possible, which is 62. Um, but as Americans are living into their 80s and 90s, that may not be the best financial decision, particularly if you don't have um, a pension or an annuity. So I think about social security as our customer's largest retirement asset. For most of them, it's the only asset that they have that has lifetime income or you know, longevity insurance. And the reality is that most financial advisors don't talk about social security with their customers. It's, not, it's viewed as a government benefit rather than a financial asset. When it's more than half of our customers' retirement income, it's it's a financial asset and it has to be included. But isn't it both the government benefit and a financial asset? Well, look, I would look, I would argue like you've paid into it. It's 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 a savings program. You've paid into it, um, and the, the asset and the and the the funds are there for you as you retire. But the the mentality of it being a government benefit, I think, changes the way people think about taking that election, and so it's it feels. Like there's this risk that it feels like a handout rather than this financial decision you're making. And so our goal is to help you understand that it's a financial decision without overwhelming you. So how do we, how do we expose and help you see the power potentially of delaying social security? It, it doesn't make sense for everyone, but it may make sense for you um, and help you understand how that impacts your financial plan. But do that in a way that doesn't require you to read 300 pages, right? That's just not realistic. To, and, and look, there's a ton of great content in those books but those books are, are written for the 1% who frankly don't even need the social security. It's not written for the other 99%. And next, uh, the clip is with uh, Sean Brown, CEO of YCharts. I uh, really enjoyed talking to Sean. Uh, I was introduced to Sean and YCharts by Trisha Rothschild, who former he was the former head of product for Morningstar and uh, was on the board of YCharts and is now president of Apex Clearing. Congratulations, Trisha. Introduced me to Sean, and I uh, really liked having him on the program. A lot of interesting insights, uh, not only about portfolio uh, analytics tools and the industry in general. You know, he's got a lot, Sean's got a long history in startups. I, I, we, we have something in common, Sean and I. We both started out as software developers and then became strategy consultants, although I kept going in the consulting area, and he moved into the startup world, corporate development, buying and selling companies. And finally, um, he was working for ICE, uh, and then um, ICE, the Inter Intercontinental Exchange, and then uh, left there to become head of YCharts. So please check out this uh, quick clip uh, with Sean Brown talking about how YCharts is expanding their data coverage from just ETFs, mutual funds, and such into SMAs, separately managed accounts, which is really a, a big area of growth for RIAs. So you brought up a good point, uh, Reg BI is just mm -hmm. uh, changing the way a lot of advisors do their business, at least on the compliance side. What, mm -hmm. what tools do you have that advisors can use to help them in that area? 
Well, we've got pre-canned analyses, which is a, a really big one, which is we, we know the things uh, 80 to 90% of people who want to do a fundamental analysis or an exposure analysis or a relative merit analysis, we know what they're trying to do. And, um, and you put in two security names, stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, models will help you compare the relative merits um, to the point you brought up earlier, which I don't think I, I fully answered on SMAs. Um, SMAs is something for high-end customers that um, advisors want to have as an option. And we just felt it was the right thing to put in and provide to them something that they, they, they don't want to have to switch to another tool to do SMA data. Um, you know, we, we think the most enlightened advisors want to have access to a whole lot of different asset classes. They want to do um, some good solid analysis, but they don't want to start from scratch with a blank sheet of paper and, okay, how do I, how do I compare these two portfolios? Um, and, and we think the best thing we can do is help them very quick and efficiently do these analyses, help them save off these analyses, and help them present these analyses to um, their customers to say, I've got your back. I'm thinking about this for you. Here's my uh, proof points. Hope it works for you. Let's talk more. And um, you know, when they want to meet their regulatory obligations or, or need to prove it, they've got a really nice documentation trail that helps them do that. Yeah, I think it's interesting you guys moved to SMA data. I mean, we work with a lot of enterprise firms, broker dealers and banks, and they're all about separately managed accounts. It's very popular with their clients, especially on the wirehouse side, huge, use, huge users of, of separately managed accounts. So it's interesting that mm -hmm. more RIAs are, are using SMAs, whereas the majority of yeah. assets in the RIA space has always been ETFs and mutual funds. So seeing them move yeah. into SMAs, do you think it's also the, the fact that there are more SMAs with lower minimums, um, no trading uh, costs, uh, yep. the fractional shares gives other options for mass affluent clients? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's, um, we have access to over 10,000 separate accounts. Um, just just saying 10,000 means there's a lot out there. And and I've always found the laws of supply and demand tell you um, uh, there wouldn't be 10,000 if there weren't ample needs and interest in them. The challenging part, whether it's you're talking about separate accounts or you're talking about models, is everybody gets those at the conceptual level, but how do you compare them, right? It, it, models. There are 10,000 models out there in model marketplaces, and a lot of them look something like this is a 60-40. That doesn't mean they're the same thing, right? So how do you how do you do your homework to compare two, you know, um, two 60-40 models to know which one's right? And how do you know the exposures of those models? And how do you know the underlying securities? The thing we really like. Uh, to see that our clients are doing in our platform is they're taking these aggregated things, whether those are models or those are mutual funds, which are comprised of, you know, uh, or ETFs comprised of a bunch of holdings is saying, what are the atomic pieces of each of those aggregated things? And how can I look and see what is my exposure in these two different models or these two different SMAs? What's my exposure to big tech or FANG stocks? And uh, we, we just find our, our, our clients really leveraging that functionality 
quite a bit and having very robust discussions with their customers afterward. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of clients don't even realize their exposure. They think, oh, mm -hmm. I'll buy a little Apple stock, I'll buy a little Facebook stock because it's in the news. They don't realize how much they already own in every in all the you know, any large cap mutual fund. Hugely important, hugely important. People have no idea how much uh, uh, exposure they face in some of these things that look like well diversified assets on their own. They're, they they may or may not be, and and you or your advisor should do your homework. Yes, they should, which is why they need tools like like Y charts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One area we've seen a lot of movement in, uh, well, every year it seems to get more and more is M&A, you know, the, the, the mergers mm -hmm. and acquisitions and the amount of money coming into the space, especially um, not just our, buying RIAs and buying uh, broker dealers, but buying fintech firms that service the wealth management mm -hmm. space. We're seeing a lot of that. And you guys just closed your own deal. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, we were acquired by a private equity firm out of Philadelphia called LLR Partners, um, which is a really a thrilling milestone in our journey. It's neither the end nor the beginning of a journey. It's, it's a continuation that's going to help us uh, grow the way we have an opportunity to grow in our future. So we're really excited about that. And, and broadly, if it's in a context of the, the advisor space, and the space for fintechs that serve advisors is a very, very, very attractive space. Um, a lot of fundamental dynamics for advisors that say when they break away from a wirehouse or, or wherever they're coming from, they, they cut their chops on having their, if they're an RA, they cut their chops on having their own enterprise. But some of them realize the way to achieve their goals is actually to get economies of scale which says they may want to merge and engage in M&A. Um, in, in a lot of ways, the fintech space is, is fairly similar, which is it's not that hard to put a technology asset out in the market. It is challenging and it is a, a, a many, many, many year journey to make a profitable, viable, solvent enterprise. And so anytime you have economies of scale as a driver in a market. And anytime a market is growing at a significant clip, um, those are fertile ground for M&A. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now. You have a lot of experience in m and You spent years, a couple of years in strategy development, as you mentioned, traveling the world, buying up companies for uh, a, a public company. So you've got, you have probably a lot more experience than the CEOs of other smaller fintechs. So you probably approached, so how did that experience, first of all, how did that experience help you when LLR came calling and said, hey, we want to buy you? Well, how, how did that change the way you approach that transaction? Well, I, I think one of the things I've learned over the course of my career is M&A is not successful just because the buyer and seller agree to a price. In fact, Sometimes that's a recipe, um, you know, for a lack of success. I think what makes M&A successful is a shared vision of the future, uh, a, a tight cultural alignment, um, shared accountability, and an understanding that 
M&A doesn't work just by uh, handing somebody a check. M&A works when there's a check plus strategic collaboration plus uh, shared execution. And so I think the thing I learned through my career is like a marriage, it's not just about the ceremony. It's about setting the conditions for a successful marriage going forward. And so uh, bringing that to Y charts, um, we for the past um, handful of years have been growing tremendously fast, but we've been growing tremendously fast uh, while self-funding based on many, many years ago, some venture funding we raised, we've been constraining ourselves based on our cash flow. And, and we got to some great milestones, uh, revenue-wise, cash flow positive, all those great things. Um, but there's so much opportunity in the wealth advisor asset manager space. There's so much need for somebody to support them and their workflows that we said a, a, a really a, a change of pace, a capital infusion, uh, the ability to engage in future M&A was going to help us best serve our market. And so that's how we got there. And um, I'm just thrilled with uh, with the partner we've uh, we've found ourselves uh, married to for a long, long time. Good to hear. You want to be happy. At least at least this is still the yeah. honeymoon phase. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? If 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 you if you do your homework up front, I found that with my own marriage. If you if you take the time to get to know the person you end up going on a honeymoon with. Um, when, when you come out of that honeymoon stage, it still feels like you're in a honeymoon. And uh, yeah, we're in the honeymoon stage with LLR, but I, I sure do feel good about the things we learned about them over the past three to six months that says this is going to be a really nice marriage. A couple of things. You, you, you use the word shared a number of times when you're talking about the transaction, shared vision of the future, shared accountability, shared execution, uh, is that something you would recommend to other CEOs of, of firms looking for funding that they want to focus on that shared, uh, everything being shared between the the target and the acquirer? Or there, are there other tips and tricks you'd, or tips and recommendations you'd give to CEOs who haven't been through this before? Mm. Yeah, I, th I think my biggest thing is um, not all checks and those are physical checks. N not all checks are equal. You can go get funding from somebody who will give you a check and no more than that. Or you can get funding and a check and a partner in a journey that will inspire you, support you, push you, um, challenge you, and uh, look for the latter. It it's easy to get checks, and, but that's that's no big success. There's so much capital being poured into our space right now. The check is the easy part. The success story after the check is what's really important and just never lose sight of that. And, you know, if, if you're thinking of raising a round of venture capital or you're thinking of taking on some angel investors, um, don't limit your scope to, wow, I got a check. Say, what am I getting in addition to that check? And finally, last but not least on our end of the year roundup of the best clips of 2020, we have uh, my friend and super uh, entrepreneur, fintech guy, Aaron Shum, CEO and founder of Vestwell. Vestwell is Aaron's second startup. His first one was 
a very successful folio dynamics, which was bought and sold twice, uh, finally uh, ended up at uh, Investnet, which they then uh, you know, in, 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 enveloped it and uh, sucked it into their overall uh, infrastructure. So it doesn't exist anymore, but a great company uh, that did a lot of good things uh, in financial services and wealth management, building out technology uh, uh, for folio dynamics. And then Bestwell has been killing it, just uh, doing great in the retirement space building out what people have called a robo-retirement, robo-record keeper, as Aaron says, he doesn't care which cause, as long as you work with us. Uh, and uh, great little clip from Aaron uh, talking about how they are really changing the market for employer uh, retirement plans. And this is, this is really uh, important because uh, retirement is something that a lot of companies don't handle well. It's been clunky. There's been a lot of paperwork involved, and they're not really efficient. So I think that Vestwell has got a great platform to help employers not only save money on their retirement plans, but provide better options, uh, better tools, better financial um, success for their employees. So please check out this clip with Aaron Shum. Cool. So that that leads your mention there of the of that mention leads us right into the uh, into the survey. So can you explain what the the multiple the difference between the multiple employer plans and the pooled employer plans for those of us playing at home who don't know those terms yeah and, I, and i'm gonna hopefully don't reverse these but um the the overall idea is right it, it's it's creating a plan contract a plan design um with a set of investment elections and and um and matches and so on um where everyone is pooled right you have a lead you have a leading uh, uh sponsor right someone that acts as the the, the plan sponsor across the entire map um, structure that Pat will come back to. And what they'll do is everyone kind of piles into there, right? Everyone gets the same plan. So it's been around for 20 plus years, right? You see, um, actually, if you, if you really kind of look at it, it goes all the way back to like the pension era, right? And, and how those work. Um, and, but in, in the multiple employer plan, what happens if you think of like a, a PEO, right? Uh, like a, like a Trinet or an EDP or something like that, that where they have, oftentimes those are a map that you become part of um, when you invest within their, you know, within their re retirement plan. Um, now, the, what they're doing is making it, there, there's the open, the concept of an open map and closed map, right? Which um, talks about, you know, who can actually come in and, and how those get, uh, get administered. Um, it's, you can now add more people that are outside of the industry or outside of a, a structure, right? Where before it would just say, okay, only lawyers can be a part of this map, right? Law firms, right? Now it's expanded into where you could add different different types of uh, in, in companies into that. Um, so that's happening. What people they do that because it it's supposedly easier for people to administer. I I, I argue that differently. Um, I don't think it is much easier. Right. When you look at if you have multiple payroll providers and that you have to incorporate, if it's just one payroll company, yeah, sure, that's fine because everyone's going to the same thing. But if you have, you know, a thousand companies and a thousand payroll companies you have to connect to with it and manage that, it is it's not the it's not as easy as people think, right? Gotcha. Now on the backside of this, the PEPs, as well as the maps, they goes down to fifty five hundred, right? And instead of having to do a fifty five hundred uh, IRS filing for every every company, they can do one filing. Um, so you basically do an aggregate filing around it, right? Which does make some things somewhat easier. We've kind of taken a different approach. Where we just we automate a lot of the 
the the stuff that doesn't add a lot of value um but can but is necessary right maybe you think of like payroll connectivity and eligibility those are things that's what we focus on right we have you know, I would argue the best payroll engine out there, right? The, and the ability to aggregate and distill information and look for anomalies, calculate eligibility, you know, in microseconds and getting those things right up front, eliminate all the downstream uh, operational, you know, aspects that kind of snowball into these, these, these large, uh, large headaches for folks. And we catch it all up front, right? And doing that, you know, things get streamlined. So I look at it, we can do a, we can offer an individual a retirement plan, an individual company retirement plan that is cheaper than any MEP you could ever find in the marketplace that's customized for them, that allows them to do whatever they want, right? And grow and change and augment the plan as, as they need, as, as the company evolves. Um, so, you know, from our standpoint, now will we offer MEPs? Sure. Yeah, we have a couple of MEPs that are coming on now. We'll have some PEPs out there. Like, it's fine. We don't, we don't really care, right? We just want to be the engine to help facilitate and, and change the experience overall and, and and give people kind of what they expect in today's world. Sure. In, in your survey, which is called the 2020 Retirement Trends Report, which I'll put a link to on uh, uh, on our website, you're showing that 33% of advisors anticipate incorporating these uh, employer plans into their practice. Do you see that, is that number low or high or just about right for the industry? So I I think it's a, it's a it's a little high, right? And here's why. Um, so as an advisor, right, if I'm a financial advisor and I'm engaging with a business, I, I don't see why an advisor would want to push a business into a box that maybe they don't fit into. Right. And just to alleviate, now you could say, well, there's better fiduciary coverage. There's, you know, operationally it's better and that's all fine. Right. Um, but as an advisor, right, their advice should be providing the best plan design and structure for that business and the employees, right? Because that's, you know, risk is designed for the benefit of employees, right? And mm-hmm. the protection of those employees. So, I, so I, you know, so I think, you know, it, people gravitate towards this because they think it's, you know, because it's the new, I guess, the, the topic of the day or the hot, hot item that people want to say, yeah, I can do that and check, right? But at the end, but I think when we see this play out, you know, a few years down the road, I don't think people are going to, they're going to look at it and say, yeah, I don't get that much out of it. Right. Um, so I think it's a little high and if I'm an advisor, I'd say, you know, I, I'd want to give my client the, the best advice, the best plan structure I can. Right. And not, not just, no, no, that's not saying some people don't fit in that box. You know, there, there's those opportunities. And I think there's, there are opportunities too for advisors to say, well, maybe I'm going to stand up a couple peps and meps myself as a, as a provider to my clients. And then decide, you know, be the air traffic controller as to where where they should land. Seems to make sense. It gives them more options. So let's move on to um, another area, which I wanted to cover on the, on the sponsor side. So, why do you think the you know the it seems to be that user experience and cost are running neck and neck when it comes to choosing a retirement plan sponsor? Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. Well. Cost, cost depends on who's who's going to bear the, the actual fees, right? And it could be um, the the sponsor themselves, it could be the participants, or or it could be split, right? Um, but cost, especially in, in a cost conscious world, you, you want to make sure you're getting the, the best value, right? And I think that that also ties into the experience, right? If 
as as a, a sponsor of a 401k plan, and we have this awesome 401k plan through Vestwell, um, they, you know, if, as long as that that flows well, and I have a great experience as the HR person or CFO or who's ever managing the payroll um, to get ingested into the platform, and the participants actually can understand what they're doing and engage in an experience that makes sense for them without having to be a, a financial expert. Um, it alleviates the headaches for the sponsor, right? As well as the participant, they know what to do, right? There, it, it's it, it's kind of funny. We we've seen a lot of instances where companies have grown, right? Where they've they've come, you know, through like a payroll relationship we have, and they don't have a financial advisor. Um, most plans do. Ninety three percent of retirement plans have a financial advisor attached, right? In just industry statistics, and that's actually grown over time. It's gone from sixty eight back in I think two thousand eight to 2019, we're at 93%. Um, and Fidelity does a study around this stuff every year. And, and you can see that. So it, I think it, it creates, um, it shows that advisors aren't going anywhere. And, and it, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming more, um, more relevant in, in the 401k world. But for some businesses, not everyone has a financial advisor, right? And then they grow. And all of a sudden, the HR person's getting, you know, knock on the door, phone call, or meeting request to talk about the what they can do in their 401k plan. The HR person's like, "Listen, I, I got enough in my play. I, I don't want to do this, right?" So that that's where that's where the experience I think comes into play, right? And then we often often get asked, like, "Hey, do you have a financial advisor you could introduce us to?" And we're like, yeah, "Absolutely, right. We work with thousands." Yeah. Um, so so that you know, I, I think it just bodes to the fact that you want to create an experience, you want to alleviate. You want to allow people to make competent decisions, right? Without having to be experts in that field, right? The employees of any business don't have, they shouldn't have to be 401k experts or investment experts. So if we can solve for that, um, we're doing our job. So you mentioned something interesting that people are coming to you, Vestwell, you know, the provider of the underlying technology and saying, hey, do you have an advisor that we can talk to? And that's usually been an area and that, and that gives you a whole referral stream to your advisors, which has been an area that custodians have, kind of try to keep, make their own, like, hey, join our little network, we'll give you referrals. Is that something you're seeing as a, as a benefit of advisors coming to the Vestwell network? I mean, we don't, we don't do it for, you know, not, we're not doing it as a money-making thing, right? I know there are payroll providers, right, that, that use this as like a revenue stream for them. Mm -hmm. um, we're just doing it to help, help, help businesses, right? Um, you know, most of our business is advisor-led, right? Advisor-driven, um, probably aligning with the statistics of the industry as a whole. Um, but, you know, not everyone's the same and recognize that. So, um, but, you know, it's important for, you know, it, it, advisors do great things, right? And making sure that they're tapped into this, this world where there's a need, we try to, you know, find a fit for them. Um, so, yeah, so we, we do it. It's not, but again, it's not like a business Gotcha. initiative that we have we just yeah okay. so can we talk about the misalignment of rankings between sponsors and advisors when it comes to measuring success where they, they seem to have different ideas of what's a, what a successful plan is can you talk about that a bit well so so you know advisors well let me start with the sponsors sponsors think success in and this is in my opinion right right is when things don't go wrong right and you know, you, don't, you never want a retirement plan to be a headache for someone, right? The challenge is retirement plans are complicated, right? There are so many moving parts in these things, right? And and even like as, you know, we built this platform and, and you know, having, you know, we've been fortunate because even myself and a lot of folks on our team have been on both sides, right? We've been on wealth and retirement mm -hmm. over our careers. Um, 
which which you don't see often, which is kind of interesting, but in seeing how things play out on the wealth side and then and then looking at the complexities of retirement plan and all the nuance around you know just eligibility, right? And the complexities that that people have put in place. Now, I think some of it's been been made overly complex, right? For whether because people wanted to you know scare people into doing certain things or 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 you know laws just got in the way. Um, so kind of unwinding those things and distilling it and, and back to the point where we're trying to take the complicated stuff that's low value add and streamline it becomes important. So if you do that for a, a plan sponsor, who's ultimately the client, right? They're the mutual clients at the end of the day, you want to make their life easy, right? You don't want to be like, oh, I got payroll again. Then I got to, I got to go do this. And this is going to take me two hours to process, right? You want it to happen right away um, and as easy as possible. So we focus a lot on that. And I think that's important, right? Um, on the advisor side, right? They want they want good. It depends on the advisor, right, and how far they want to go into the equation. Um, but advisors just want to make sure their clients are taken care of, right? Because if they're not, it's a reflection of the advisor who recommended, you know, to use this sort of structure or this sort of program. Um, so you, you know, so you want to make sure that's that's aligned. So I I understand why. You, where the respective you know sides are coming from with it and and you know which makes our job you know that we have to solve for it all right keep keep the plans clean keep them happy keep them moving create the experience you want and make sure it doesn't get screwed up and then make sure that you know the advisors clients are happy and getting what they want and then you know then we all win um and it's something we talk about all the time as a business right like our, our goal is to make sure that every single person that touches this platform irrespective of who it is if it's an advisor, if it's an asset manager, if it's a if it's a company, if it's a if it's the employees of those companies, every person has to be better with best well than without, um, and and that's something we we focus on every day. Hey, it's Craig again. That's a wrap on this year, twenty twenty. Uh, our best of episode is over. Please share this episode everywhere you can. Uh, other people would like to hear it. And any of your friends uh, you know who would be interested in this, please share it around and send us your comments. Any um, ideas for people you think we should interview in 2021, please post it on Twitter uh, to me at Craig Iskowitz or on our website. You can send us a comment there as well. And please remember to give us a five-star review on iTunes. Bye, yada, yada, yada. Have a happy new year. Uh, create a happy holidays and see you all next year.